Welcome to First Reading Podcast, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. We have coming up very soon a big full episode, a great Dane of an episode, you might say. But in the meantime, we have another mini episode, a sort of uh, Bijan Frise of, uh, of an episode. And uh, Rachel, you're leading us out on this one, right? I am, and this was such a hard one to do, Tim, because this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. So I am trying to keep it as succinct as I can, and you will have to forgive me if I go long. No, I am going to keep it as succinct as I can. So we are in 1 Kings 19. This is the uh, third chapter in the Elijah narrative. Elijah is one of my favorite prophets in the Old Testament. And the gospel lesson for today is Jesus healing the Gerasen demoniac. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. So just keep that in mind. Now, this starts with a little bit of context in the first few verses. And then in verse 3, it comes right in with the fact that Elijah is afraid and he is running for his life. And we have to understand, first of all, why Elijah was so scared. And to do that, you got to go back a couple of chapters to 1 Kings 17 and 18. Now, if you're seriously considering preaching on this text, I highly encourage you at this moment to pause the podcast, go and read 1 Kings chapter 17 to 18. It will give you all of the background that you need to really preach this. You'll, uh, you'll learn about Elijah's arrogance in the first half of chapter 17, how God teaches Elijah how high are the stakes of being God's prophet, the way he used God's power for the fantastic and miraculous in chapter 18, and yet how that moment of power also leads to bloodshed and leads him to angering the most powerful person in Israel at this time, not the king of Israel, but the queen. Mm-hmm. So... He angers the queen of Israel, and she says, Thus may God do to the gods do to me and more, if this time tomorrow I have not made you like one of the people whom you killed in chapter 18. She says this to Elijah. And he is terrified. Elijah is scared by what Jezebel has said. She has used a curse formula, which means she has bound herself to that oath, and she is asking the gods to visit that punishment upon her if she cannot do it to him. So it's basically, at this point, either your life or my life, buddy. And so Elijah takes off. Now, fair warning. The lectionary cuts this text off at verse 15a. I'm going to beg and plead with you to extend it just a little bit farther to verse 16, and if you're feeling really brave, all the way to verse 18. But we'll keep going with where we are right now. In verses 3 to 4, Elijah goes into the wilderness, lies under a bush, and prays essentially to die. Now, this is going to be a fraught text for anybody in your congregation who has struggled with issues of suicide, depression, anxiety. So if you know of that in your congregation, of course, you want to be really careful about how you preach this. Um, But at the same time, those are issues that we never talk about from the pulpit. So while it's a fraught opportunity, it is still an opportunity to name an experience of people that doesn't get talked about in the open very much and and still includes a lot of shame with it too. What's really beautiful about this text is how God responds to Elijah's state, whether that's depression or anxiety or whatever it might be. God sends an angel and he shakes uh, Elijah or touches Elijah and says, get up, eat, 
for the way is too much for you. And this is such a powerful, potent moment that the Hebrew is kind of stunning in its brevity. It is very short and very almost sharp. The angel says to his, Kum, Echol, get up, eat, for the way is too much for you. And you can pause there, you can hover there as a preacher and say, where do we lie down to give and just give up? Where are we called to get up? How are we given nourishment, but which is still up to us to ingest? Because Elijah does get up and eat and drink, and then he lays down again. And so the angel comes back a second time and touches him and tells him the same thing, that the journey will be too much for him. And this time, Elijah does get up, eats and drinks, and goes in the strength of that food 40 days to Mount Horeb, finds a cave there and spends a night. Now, if you're hearing Moses overtones here, you're absolutely supposed to. 40 days and nights is how long old Mo was on Mount Sinai when he was given the Torah from God. Horeb is another name for Sinai. And when Moses was on Sinai, he asks to see the glory of God, which God says, "Mm, sorry, can't, that would kill you, but I will tuck you in this little cave right here and cover you until you pass by, and then you can see the back of my glory. And I would highly encourage you to make any jokes about the divine backside, as many (laughs) as your congregation will allow. Holy Spirit got back, Jesus got back, you take it and run with it. Now, Verses 9 to 14, this is the core of the text, and it is so beautifully constructed in Hebrew, and the translators did a really nice job of trying to capture that. Now, for the sake of time, I won't walk us through all of the lovely details, but I will say this. Verses 8b, so the second half of verse 8 through verses 10, are word for word repeated in verses 13b to 14. God begins the interaction by saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah lays his case before the Lord. I am zealous for you. The Israelites have abandoned you. I alone am left, and they are out to take my life. He is burnt out, in other words. He is done. He is saying, look, God, I got nothing left. And much like the angel's response to Elijah's moment under the broom bush, God's response is also remarkably brief, almost curt in comparison. In verse 11, God says, Go, stand on the mountain before the Lord. There's this really interesting interaction of this overwhelming emotional or psychological state of Elijah and this encouraged certain actions which are supposed to nourish him from divine beings, either the angel or from God. So, you get this image of God saying, just shh, listen, look. And then there's a wind. It's this remarkable demonstration of God's power. But the text says there's no God. There's an earthquake, remarkable demonstration of God's power, but no God. A third time, fire, power, but no God. And then in verse 12, you get this wonderful, mysterious verse. Then, kol mama daka. A sound, thin, silence. These are rare Hebrew words, so we don't really get a clear idea of what's going on, but we do get the suggestion that in this, in this moment of thin silence, or deafening silence maybe, God is present. And it's after this that God repeats his question word for word. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And this repetition suggests that Elijah's answer should not be the same as it was before. Elijah told God, I am burnt out. And so God did everything in God's power to give Elijah what he needed for the rest of his journey. And yet Elijah's response in verse 14 is exactly the same word for word. It has not changed a bit. I am zealous for you. The Israelites have abandoned you. I alone and left. They are out to take my life. I am burnt out, God. I got nothing left. And why it's so damaging to slice this text off at verse 15 is because it leaves off the full response that God has to this fourth time that Elijah wants to call it quits. He lies under the broom bush once, he gets up and eats. He lies under the broom bush twice, he gets up and eats. He um, he speaks to God on the mountain. God gives him a theophany, this manifestation of God's presence. But a fourth time, Elijah's response has not changed. And in verses 15 to 18, we hear what God asks him to do one last time. He asks him to anoint, anoint a new king of Aram, to anoint a new king of Israel. And then, so importantly in verse 16, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. There's no judgment here. If you are calling it quits, Elijah, I will not force you to go farther. Your final task is to appoint your successor, and I will let you go. But he doesn't let him go completely, because Elijah's claim was that he alone was left, and God does say in verse 18, by the way, there are 7,000 in Israel, 7,000 who have not worshipped Baal, so you alone were not left, Elijah. And I love that because it acknowledges and honors the doneness of Elijah, but it also won't allow him to kind of wallow in the story that he's told himself, which isn't completely true. Mm -hmm. So for a sermon angle, if you're going to preach on the Gerasene demoniac, uh, the demoniac is seized by the demons, and yet at the end of the story, the people are seized by fear at what Jesus has done in this miraculous healing. So again, you could preach on fear. You could also preach on power, how God, how Elijah uses power for incredible and fantastic things in the first few verses, but that power burns him out and leads to bloodshed. And how do we responsibly use power, especially when we are claiming that God is behind it? Uh, and finally, maybe preach about what fear causes us to miss. Miraculous healings, majestic acts of God, a still small voice, which just might be a gracious and miniature theophany a God appearance in our lives. Well, we need to hear that. Thanks so much for that, Rachel. That's probably a good spot to wrap up our conversation for the week. I'd encourage all of you to go to our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, to see past episodes and all sorts of other goodies there. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed in iTunes or in your podcast app or however you like to get podcasts. That will uh, give you access to episodes as soon as they're ready. But uh, that's about what we have for this week. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching.